Amen. Thanks, B. Thanks, Michael, and thanks, Ben. Good morning. Going well so far, isn't it? Hey, I could go wrong with the screens and Michael's guitar strings snapping. It's a um, great morning, though, to be gathering, no matter what the environment is like, no matter what the temperature is like, no matter what's going on, we get to gather together as God's people and hear from God and His Word. That is always a privilege. Let's never, ever lose sight of that. Um, I actually get to experience this coldness in a different way as a bald man. The bald man in the room will know exactly what I'm talking about. I had to check the bread this morning as well that it wasn't frozen because that would have been embarrassing as I'm stood there trying to break it, <laughs> making sure that was okay. Okay, we're in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Tell Michael's a creative as well, can't you? He even, um, even coughed in a dramatic fashion there. Okay, so we're in the letter of 1 Peter written by the Apostle Peter to a group of churches in Asia Minor. And it's taken them um, to them by a guy called Sylvanus. We read that in, in verse 12 of today's section that we're going to be looking at. And what would have happened is they would have gathered together and it would have been read to them. And it probably would have been explained to them by Sylvanus. He would have hung around to actually explain the context of content of this letter. And the letter as we've been looking at it is written to call the church to stand firm in the grace of God. As, this first, as the church is facing a growing persecution. So let me read it, we'll pray, and we'll jump straight in. Chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Peter. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not dominating over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let us pray together. Father, you are such a good God. Father, we thank you so much that you've written these words down for us, that you have spoken to us by and through your word, that we read these words from Peter to these groups of people who we have never met. But Father, in this we find the words of life. In this we find the true grace of God. We find your grace, your words to us. Father, I pray as we gather as your people today, I pray as we gather as your family today, that we will believe that you are here, 
that we would be experience the fullness of the grace of your presence by the power of your Holy Spirit through the work and presence of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that our hearts will be refreshed this morning, our hearts will be warmed this morning, and we would hear from you today these words of life. Amen. Okay, so first of all, Peter, what he does, he speaks to the elders. He says this, so I exhort the elders among you, verse 1 to 4, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the, God, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See, as we look through and at the early church and through the book of Acts and through the, the letters that the apostles all wrote, we read that the, the elders were appointed. These elders were godly men of good character. They displayed this character in their home, in the workplace, in the church. And these were men who were able to teach God's word, to refute error. And the elders that were appointed, it was always plural. So elders was always a plural appointment. It's a group of men who are called into the office of eldership in the local church. And verse 2, Peter actually outlines the roles. He says that they are shepherds, overseers, pastors, leaders. They care for God's flock. They watch over the flock of God. They have a responsibility to love and to serve God's people. They're not special men, ordinary men, saved by the grace of God and called to serve God's people. And what Peter does immediately, it's really interesting, he draws alongside them, so he calls them fellow elders. He says he, he saw the first hand Jesus Christ suffering. He, he's going to partake in the glory that is set before them. And, and he does this for a reason, because hostility and persecution is increasing in their lives. Opposition to what they are doing as the gospel advances is bubbling up. And it's the elders, the public representatives, those who hold the office, that public officers that will experience that public persecution. And they will experience that first and intensely as the gospel advances. And Peter is saying to them, as hostility increases, stand firm in the grace of God. In the face of persecution and suffering, stand firm in the place, stand firm in the grace of God. And then in two to three, what he does, he actually instructs them how they are to lead as elders, what it looks like for them. He says that they're not to do it under compulsion. They're not to be elders because they have to, or because no one else will do it, or because they feel trapped in the role. That just leads to, to bitterness, resentment, envy, or jealousy for the things you've given up for the role. And that negative emotion is experienced against God and against his people. We're not to do it under compulsion. And it's not to be for shameful gain, not for the wrong motive, for money, for influence, or for power. It, it isn't something that you receive, so it's not a personal gain, it's a role of service. And Peter is a pain to the whole of this letter, to call to the Christian community, and here to the elders, it's the role of, of under, not to put yourself all over people, but to be under people in service, and to serve them in leadership. And it's not to be in a domineering way. To not use the power or influence that you may have, a physical presence or a persuasive gift to get your own way or advance your own agenda. But rather, elders are to lead as God would have them lead. So what is that? Willingly. To want 
to, to desire to serve God, to desire to serve God's people. The eldership process that we have here at Cornerstone Church is a long process. It can actually take years from start to end. And what we do, we test a lot of areas. We, we, we watch and we, we ask you as, as God's people to feed into this process. And what we are testing is just conduct in ordinary life. We're looking at how they live in relationship to God, how they live in relation to their wife, how they live in relation to their children and, and God's people and the community in their workplace. And what we find and what we will always find is the elders that we appoint are already doing it. They are already serving. They don't just start serving God's people because they are elders. They serve God's people and we recognize God's work in and through them, as do you. And they're to do it eagerly. Eagerly, why? Because to be an elder requires sacrifice. And elders are to be ready to make a sacrifice for the good of the church. Elders are to be ready to take the hits of leadership, the hits of service, the hits of taking responsibility. Elders are to, to be ready to give up finances in working for the church. They're to be ready to give up time or days of work to serve the church. And folks, can I just say, and I'm pretty sure most of you know this, but I need to highlight this, that this is not just the men who are called into eldership that make this sacrifice. It is their families that make that sacrifice with them. There's a partnership going on here. Wives, children, just be aware of this. And elders are to be an example of what it looks like to live as a Christian. That means they need to live lives that are seen. The elders are to be among God's people in a visible way, next to them, in their lives, with open lives themselves. Not perfect men, but men who live lives of repentance and faith. Men who live lives of sacrifice and service. Men who are growing in love for God and growing in a love for God's people. I've had the, the privilege of being an elder here for 12 years. And I, I do need to say that it's an absolute privilege, an absolute privilege to serve alongside these men. For those that, that don't know them, let me name them. Steve, Alan, Luke, Sam, Eddie, Ben. These are the elders that we have serving at this particular moment in time where we've had, had others who we've served alongside over the past 12 years. I can say with a hand on my heart and before God and in his presence that these men love you. These men love God. These men want to serve God and they want to serve you. They are eager to do it and they are an example. They are. But folks, they need prayer. They need prayer. Their wives need prayer. Their children need prayer. Can I lay that before you this week? And for the time ahead, can you please keep the elders, keep their wives, keep their children in prayer? Praying thanks for them. Pray for them because they're on the front lines. And men, verse 4, elders in the room, Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. There's two things here. One, that is a challenge, folks. He is the true shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. He is the leader. He is the one who is out in front, who sets the direction. He sets the tone. He sets the culture. He decides how we are to lead, how we are to speak, how we are to act. So we are to lead, as verse 2 says, as God would have us. Men, keep a watch over your own souls. But also be comforted. 
because he's your shepherd. He leads you to green pastures. He leads you to still waters. He protects you. He protects the sheep. He loves you. He leads you. He protects you as he does all of his church. I know that Jesus Christ is coming back. This is a big theme in Peter. Stand firm in the grace of God because Jesus is returning. And look to that time. Because when he does, you will receive not a leafy crown, not the, the crown that the athletes of the day would have received, which would have faded because it was just a leaf. But you will receive the crown of eternal life with God. That's your future. And then in verse 5, he speaks to younger people. I find this really interesting that he does this. He says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject to the elders. Being subject is a theme in 1 Peter. Remember I said that a lot of 1 Peter is not about asserting yourself over people, but it's about putting yourself under in service. That's what the elders are called to do. And now he's saying, younger people, be subject. See, the church as a whole is to be marked by service and sacrifice and submission. And he points out specifically younger folks, maybe specifically younger leaders, we don't know. Because maybe they could be the ones who are questioning decisions. Maybe the ones who are more likely to push back against the leadership. And Peter is saying, help the leaders, help them as they lead, support them in their role. He isn't saying, go along with every single decision without thinking about it or without biblically processing it. He isn't saying, go against God's law or just blindly follow. He isn't saying that, that you're to do any of things, but what he is, you're meant to see this or see the church as an orchestra. Don't see it as a solo song. What do I mean by that? See, in an orchestra, what happens, you have different instructions given to different people. And the different people are in different sections and there's different instruments in all the different sections. And a beautiful noise is made by this orchestra when, when all the musicians know how to play, yes, their own role, but amongst the section that they're in, but also in relation to all the other sections that are around. How their role fits into other people's roles. And so all of these different sections fit in together to play this one song. It has a real complementarity to it, a real complementarity. And it's the same when we come to the church that everyone has, to, has a part to play. The church sings a beautiful song. God is playing it through us. We're not an isolated unit. And we're not to play as an isolated unit. We're not to work out our faith as an isolated unit, but we're to do it together, to help each other, to support one another. So Peter is calling to the younger folks in the congregation to say, help your leaders, support them as they seek to serve you in their leadership function. And then Peter turns his attention to the whole church. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I'm colorblind. I know it might be hard for some of you to say because you think my, my clothes do match, but the reason they match is because I'm always asking Bonnie, can I wear this? Does this go together? How does this look together? And the reason I say that is because if something doesn't match, it stands out and I look really bad and I don't want that to happen. There are clothes that go together in colors and in styles. And here, Peter is saying, clothe yourself in humility. He's saying there's a way to dress that matches your belief. Your behavior can match your belief as a Christian. There's a way for that to be paired together, and it's called humility. 
Clothe yourself, humble yourself. It's actually active language. It takes effort. You see, humility, folks, is right at the heart of Christianity, right at the heart of Christianity. Andrew Murray, who's written a book on humility, said, said this. Humility is not so much a grace or a virtue along with all the others. It's the root of all. Because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. Humility is the place of entire dependence on God. The loss of this humility is pride, the root of every sin and evil. That's really important. I really want us to grab that understanding of biblical humility and what it is because I think if you understand that, the rest falls into place because I think we actually misunderstand humility. Humility is total, entire dependence on God for everything. That's what biblical humility is. And it's really important because we actually do depend on God for everything. We do. So humility and living in humility and walking in humility is actually living in reality. It's to see yourself rightly. It's to see God rightly. It's to see the world rightly. It's to be in the right mind, to think rationally and be sober-minded, as Peter calls it. C.S. Lewis goes, to far as to say, goes as far as to say, to lose your humility is to lose your sanity. To lose your humility is to lose your sanity. And that helps us process, doesn't it? A lot of mental problems that we can walk through and suffer through. Humility acknowledges our need before God, his daily grace, his providence. And it takes shape in how we relate to others when we realize it is dependent upon God. See, Peter calls us to, to clothe ourselves in humility as we relate one to another. Because he goes on to say, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So that makes sense, doesn't it, in light of this understanding? See, when we're walking in humility, we're living in reality, we understand ourselves and we relate to God rightly. God pours life in by his very, his very presence, blessing. He keeps us, he upholds us. But pride is in opposition to him. It's rejecting God's rule. It's rejecting God's way. And God obviously opposes that. He's not gonna condone that. He's not gonna bless living a lie. This is a call to stand firm in the grace of God by clothing ourselves in humility a mark of the Christian community, a foundational mark of the Christian community is sacrifice and service in, hum in humility towards one another. So I think in, in carrying this thought on, I've been really challenged by these three verses this week as I've been processing this. He goes on to tell them to deal with anxiety. Verse six to seven, let, let me read it again because I think it's important to, to see the flow of what he does here. Humble yourselves, verse six, therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Okay, folks, anxiety is real. Anxiety is real. I know that, you know that. We live in a fallen, broken world. And I think what we have here today is an invitation from God to deal with anxiety. And Peter's saying here, I think in strong terms, that the root of anxiety is actually a wrong view of God. That's what he's saying. And it's really challenging, I think, because Peter's addressing anxiety in a section that he's walking through on humility. If you look at verse six and seven, it's one sentence. 
Humility, folks, remember what we said it is, it's depending on God for everything. And the opposite of humility is pride. Depending on self for everything. This is a theme from the start of the Bible to the end, folks. Right in the start, what happened in that first sin? They had a choice, depend on God, believe God, and in humility, have and walk in that dependence on God. And that is where safety was. That's where blessing was. That's where security was. That's where peace was. Or trust self, pride, as the Bible calls it. That led to fear and anxiety and worry. And ever since, the world we know has been broken by our sin. And there is threat and there is danger everywhere. Of course there is. But how do we respond to it? We have a choice. We have a choice. And anxiety, it takes many forms. Many forms. Arising out of the daily choices that we make, the decisions that we make internally. One of those is a constant state of fear or worry. Worry about your job, worry about your safety, worry about yourself, worry about your physical health, worry about your kids, worry about your house, fill in the blanks. But this constant state of fear and worry, it actually all revolves, it centers on and revolves around what you do, how you can control the environment, how you can govern the decisions that you make and actually bring or get rid of the anxiety. Folks, it can be really obvious. Pretty sure we can all, right now, we're all thinking of people who are clearly anxious and clearly speak it out and clearly com constantly communicate fear and worry and it takes shape in their lives. I think we can probably all picture that, but, but folks, what I want to say is let's not do that. Because this can manifest in other ways. None of us, no one in this room is immune to anxiety. And what I'm talking about here, in the processing of it, no one. I am... Um, I do this with my hands. If you can't see, I'm moving my thumbs from left to right and up and down. Yeah, I'm a bit weird, I know that, but just walk with me for a minute, okay? I've been doing this all my life and I've been doing certain things all my life. I will do patterns in my head or processes in my head and run in certain ways. And I've always done this, or I've always shifted body parts in weird ways. And I didn't know anything about it, I didn't know what was going on, I just did it, and not thought about it. And last year I went through some stuff, many of you know that, and I went through some counseling and got some really helpful counseling. And it was dealing with this idea of anxiety and worry and fear and who I am and how I process these things. And at the end of one of the sessions, I said to the counselor, I said, what, what am I doing here and when's it gonna stop? He said, oh, don't worry about that. That'll stop when your anxiety goes. And I was like, what? That'll stop when your anxiety goes. He said, that's your emotional, you are emotionally feeling something right now and you are communicating it out through your body. And it was mind blowing to me, completely mind blowing to me. Because then all of a sudden I could realize what was going on. So after that moment, I was able to realize it. So I could be sat in a meeting or a tense situation or a disagreement that I might have had at home and in the workplace, whatever that might look like. And I could, I found myself, I'm like, oh, okay. I'm feeling scared or I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling resentment or what am I feeling, Lord? What is going on here? See, folks, we are embodied souls. Our bodies manifest what we are feeling. Even if you're not aware of it, this happens. And anxiety can be an emotional response to the brokenness of the world and physically our worry and our fear and those emotions can actually manifest in different ways. They can manifest in a tightness in your neck, just there. They can manifest in a tightness in your chest. They can manifest in an anxious stomach. 
Now that nauseous stomach that you get, it can manifest in tension down your shoulders or headaches on the back of your head. It can manifest in what people would call depression. It can manifest in sleepless nights. It can manifest in tears that just seem to come out uncontrolled because your body is trying to process things that you are not doing. And it pours into relationships and we pass it on into our systems and our families and our relationships and down through our kids. Fellas, this is not just a stereotypically panicky mum before we put it there. It's manifest in all different ways. It can manifest in a desire for control. Anxiety and this kind of fear and worry can actually manifest in bullying behavior or controlling behavior in men and women. So what I'm saying here, there is a a threat and a danger in the world that we sense. And don't forget that the flow of Peter and what is going on here is that there is a growing sense of persecution and hostility. How are we gonna respond? How are we going to respond? We can respond in pride, control the environment, minimize the risk that just leads to more anxiety, can lead to more anxiety, can lead to more anxiety, or we can in humility address it and address our wrong responses. So what I think Peter does here is he addresses it for them. Verse 6, I think he addresses it by showing them there is a right view and a right understanding of God's power. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 6 is showing us that we can have a right view of God's power. The illusion in this verse with that mighty hand is God drawing his people out from Egypt, drawing Israel out from Egypt. God's mighty hand, his power is signs and wonders that only God can do. Peter's reminding them of the power of God in a time of extreme persecution. Extreme persecution. See, pride says this, I must solve all my own problems in my own strength. I am the answer. I must make everything safe. I must make everything secure. I must remove any danger. I must dot, 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 dot. It is trust in self. It is trying to be God. One of the reasons, folks, why we are so anxious is that we can't be God. We can't carry that weight. Finally, I've got a massive head. Amen. In fact, when I was in, in university, I used to get called Atlas. And the reason they called me Atlas is from Greek mythology. Atlas was, was the guy who actually had, was punished because he had to carry the world on his shoulders. That's why Atlas comes from. And he was weighed down. But when you see pictures of Atlas, he's bowed under this pressure. And I actually think some of us live that way. We bow under the pressure because we think we've got to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. That's not your job. That's not your job. That's God's job. He upholds the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you do it? Only God can do what God does. And Peter, in an increasingly anxious situation, because of persecution, says, trust God. Trust God. Persecution's coming. Trust God. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is the Lord. He will take you through. And verse 7 Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Have a right view of God in how he cares for you. So I think that we're, we're comfortable in our tribe of Christianity to take our sin to God. But I actually think we're also comfortable to keep hold of our anxiety. We'll deal with our anxiety with a counselor or with a friend. Or we'll label it, keep it over there for a bit. But Peter say No. Take it to God. Leave it with him. Take your worries. Take your fears to him. Why? 
Why? Because God cares for you. God cares about every detail of your life. He is your Father. That's how He reveals Himself to you. Through the Son, by the Spirit, you have a Father. And the Son actually tells us there's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. What did it take? What did it take for God the Father to give us the kingdom? It took him to send his own son. How can we doubt his love for us? It was his good pleasure to send his son so that we could be with him. So by the Spirit, through the Son, we have a father. He loves you. That's how much he loves you. A father who says, turn to me, I care for you. Son, daughter, child, come to me. Bring it to me. I'm here. Leave it. Leave it with me. Trust me. Cast your anxiety on God because he cares. Because he's all-powerful and because he's God. Just before I move on to verse 8, how do we get this humility? How do we grow in humility? How do we move in humility? Let's not get trapped in the temptation that we have to try to be more humble. On one level, even seeking to be more humble. Humility is a byproduct of being with Jesus. Humility is a byproduct of being with Jesus. So you struggle here, you struggle here. Do not feel any guilt or temptation to turn away or the weight of expectation or the weight of all these things. No, turn to Jesus. And in looking to Jesus and seeing Jesus and being with Jesus, humility just floods into our hearts as we realize who he is, what he has done for us, his power that he has displayed in sending his son and the love that he has displayed in sending his son. And humility comes from him. So stand firm in the grace of God. And then he warns against the devil's work. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversity, the devil, prowls round like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The Bible's really clear, folks. The devil has been defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really clear. But the Bible tells us that the devil is trying to distract and distort as much as he can before his final destruction. The Bible is very, very clear in telling us from God's word, from his word, that the devil is ultimately powerless over God's children. Powerless. This roaring lion means he's trying to intimidate. That's the phrase. That's why it's being used here. He's trying to bring fear. Remember the context as we worked through in the passage so far. The devil is trying to bring fear. And how is he doing it? As Peter is moving this letter through to its conclusion, well, he does it through persecution. The roar of the lion is the persecution that he's seeking to bring against God's children. It is his tool to intimidate God's children, trying to rob the faith, trying to rob joy, trying to destroy the witness of God's people, trying to take God's people's eyes off the glorious truth of what Jesus Christ has done, of what Jesus Christ is doing, and what is going to happen when he returns. That's his aim, and we are to resist him. How? By faith. By trusting in the promises of God. The devil whispers lies to move us towards pride. Lies about salvation, you're not good enough. You're not forgiven. Lies about God's character. You're not in, he's not in control, he doesn't care. Lies about God's protection, you can't handle this. A loving God wouldn't do this to you. 
all eyes. We are to fight in faith to believe the truth of the gospel. How? By looking to Jesus. By looking to Jesus. God says, look to Jesus Christ. Look what I've done. That's what the Father says, look what I've done. Look how much I love you. When we doubt, look to the cross. See what I've done. See the forgiveness. Look to the empty cross. See that it has been finished. Look to the empty tomb. See the victorious, the victorious Savior that has rose from the dead, declaring that it is finished. Stand firm in the grace of God. Resist the devil firm in your faith by looking to Jesus Christ. Not in your own strength, in his strength. And then he closes by giving comfort in the fight. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. There is comfort here, comfort that you are not alone. Suffering and persecution is a shared experience for all believers. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our King, went through it. Sets the pattern. Glory through suffering. Glory through judgment. And all brothers and sisters across the world are walking in it. That's what he's saying. There's a comfort in that. Comfort in that it is only a little while. Suffering is only a little while. You think, how can Peter say that? How can Peter say that? Because it is compared to the eternal weight of glory. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Your future, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is one of eternal glory in Christ. Perfect with God and perfect with his people. And there is comfort here because God will take us through. God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. So we are able to endure. We are able to run the race. We are able to reach the goal. Why? How? Because he will preserve us by his strength. He will preserve us by his grace. Are you feeling weak? Are you wondering if you have the strength to walk this? You're in a healthy spot. Stand firm in the grace of God because he will take you through. Verse 11 says, we are on the winning side. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And as Peter comes to a close in this letter, he says his goodbyes. Verse 12 to 14, by Silvanus or Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are, who are in Christ. Peter closes with his goodbyes. There's a real family sense of, of all of God's people across here. He sends greeting from, from Rome, which is Babylon, as he's talking about to here. He sends greeting from Mark, who he's close to, as we see right in the gospel. Um, but later on, through the words of Peter, And then what he does, he ties the knot on the thread that has been running through this whole letter, kind of his melodic line, saying, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. This, these words, is his grace to you. 
He's reminding you, reminding you about what he has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding you of what he is doing through you right now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's reminding us and you of what he has prepared for you for all eternity. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. When the waves of persecution, the tide of persecution starts to build, stand firm on the rock. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your grace to us. Father, I want to thank you so much that you are such a good, loving God, that you speak to us. You don't leave us alone. Father, you help us, you shape us, you move in us, you give us these words, you give us your grace. Father, we read these words and, and some of them really hit home. Father, I pray in the midst of processing this, that Jesus' face would be so much brighter and bolder to us than anything else. Father, I pray as we might be processing anxiety or fear or worry that you would make the beautiful face of the Lord Jesus Christ, his work and what he has done central in our vision. Father, help us to see what he has done on the cross. Father, help us to not just see it, but believe it and experience it. Father, help us to see the forgiveness we've received. Help us to see that the Lord Jesus Christ said it is finished because it is finished. Father, help us to see the empty grave. Help us to see and experience that newness of life that he has poured into our, into our, that you have poured into our souls by your spirit. Father, help us to experience that new life. And Father, as we, as we face a future which is, seems to be growing in hostility, seems to be growing in persecution, seems to be growing in opposition to you, your people, your way, your truth, Father, I pray for us as a people. I pray for brothers and sisters all over the world, all over the world, Father, that they would stand firm in the grace of God. Father, I pray for people who are being persecuted right now for their faith. I pray for people who can't meet as we are having this privilege to do. Even in this cold room, we get to meet. Father, I pray for those who aren't able to meet, who are being punished because of it. Father, I pray that they would stand firm in the grace of God and know your, and experience your presence in such a tangible way through this, Father. I pray for us as we seek to look into the future ahead. Father, remove our anxiety. Give us the courage to cast our anxiety. Give us the courage to make the decisions that we need to make. Give us the courage to step forward in the areas of our lives that we need to step forward. Father, I pray for Cornerstone Church, Liverpool. This family, this local church family, that we would be a bastion of strength in this community, proclaiming and living out the grace of God. Father, I pray for the elders in the room. Father, I pray that you would strengthen them and uphold them as the, they walk in this role that you call them to. Father, make them men of real depth of gracious character, willing to die to self for the good of your church. Father, I pray for the wives of the elders and the children. Protect them. Protect the marriages, I pray. Uphold them. We thank you for them and their sacrifices that they make. Father, help us to clothe ourselves in humility. Father, help us to see each other the way you see us. Father, make this church a church of sacrifice and service and submission and humility one to another by your spirit, by your son's precious name we pray this. Amen. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take communion together. The Bible says this is for believers, so if you're not a believer here, we ask that you would not take this. Please, we'd love to speak to you at the end of the service and process any of the questions that you might have. In front of you, 
the chair. There are two jars. One has got bread in, one has got juice in. Before we actually take it, folks, can I ask us? Can I ask us? Because through this letter, I think we are being called to something. Don't let this just be a, a means of just walking through the next stage of the service. Don't let this just be another moment of the service. Don't do this quickly just because it's cold. Please, can I ask you just to pause and take a moment and do this with a right heart? Do this in response to what we've just heard. Because the beautiful truth is, folks, is that we reflect on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. When we doubt God's love, when we doubt God's power, when we doubt God's presence with us, we can see the Lord Jesus Christ. He came for us, broken for us, he lived for us and he died for us. He took our place on that cross so that we could be free. He went through death so that we could go through death to life. We have life and we have eternal life that is put before us. So folks, let's not live a lie. Let's be real as we take this because God's here. Process your fear. Come to God with your fear. Cast it means move it from one place to another. Leave it with God. Take it to him. Pray for humility. If this is something you struggle with, and if you're a believer and a human, you do. Pray for humility. Pray that you would long to spend time with Jesus so that the humility would just pour out of you. Pray for the elders. Pray for their families. Pray for the younger folks of the congregation. Pray for each other. If it's something that is really, really, or really struggling with, at the end of the service, there will be people here up at the front. If you want to come and pray, there are people who can pray with you. Come and speak to us. Don't do this alone. And if you need prayer now and you want prayer right now, if you head towards the back of the church, there'll be a few of us waiting there if you want to pray as well as you process this. So let's pray together. Take our time processing this. And take it when you're ready. In a few minutes, the guys will sing and we'll respond through song. Let's do that now. <laughs>